Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's KidSafe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. We are revisiting the public school culture wars. What have we learned from the kids who fought against book bans? We really started the club to get students reading these books. Students have an opinion in this fight, too. How has the war over books sparked a backlash to the so-called parents' rights movement? It's not okay what they're doing, and they're being watched. Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony DeLisandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the presidential race in my members-only Inner Circle Club. You'll receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here is a special offer for my podcast listeners. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. And if you sign up for a one- or two-year membership, you'll get 10% off your membership price and a VIP Fast Pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. Use the code podcast at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast and use the code podcast. Hurry, this offer expires February 14th. On this episode of Newt's World, for Memorial Day, I am devoting an episode of the podcast to those who served, fought, and died for our country. The Congressional Medal of Honor is the highest U.S. military decoration awarded by Congress to a member of the Armed Forces for gallantry and bravery in combat. On this episode, we'll explore this history of the Medal of Honor and learn about some of the recipients. My guests are Laura Jowdy, Archivist and Collections Manager at Congressional Medal of Honor Society, Marcus Luttrell, retired U.S. Navy SEAL and founder of the Lone Survivor Foundation, and Herschel Woody Williams, the last living Medal of Honor recipient from World War II. Working as the archivist and collections manager at the Congressional Medal of Honor Society, what do you think is the biggest thing you've learned? Well, the biggest thing I've learned about the recipients themselves is how individual they all are. Everybody asks me, what is it that makes them do what they do? And the answer is there's no answer. Each one of them is different. They're each an individual. It's just amazing to me the the variety in personalities and who they are. And to me, that's really inspirational because it really tells you that everybody has it in them to meet the need when it comes about. That's the biggest thing I've learned is that everybody has what's has the ability and you just have to recognize that you have it within you to do great things. 
And that's really what I've learned in this job. Did you find in talking with Medal of Honor recipients that sometimes they were surprised themselves? Oh, yes. And a lot of them are surprised even at the accolades they've received for doing what they've done. I mean, that is very consistent with all of them. They all say, I was just doing what needed to be done. These are my brothers. I was protecting them. I was doing what was expected of me. I didn't expect to receive a medal or to shake the hand of the president. How did we end up with a Congressional Medal of Honor? Well, we're going back to the Civil War. And at the time, the Union had no way to recognize gallantry. They had a certificate of merit, which was a piece of paper and a slight raise in pay. And that's nothing to scoff at. But they felt they needed something a little bit more. And so it started with the Navy Medal of Honor. And a senator from Iowa introduced a bill to create the Navy Medal of Honor. And the idea was to not only reward those sailors who performed gallantry, but also almost as an inspirational tool to others in the service. So that's kind of the impetus for it, for the creation of the Medal of Honor. And it was all about providing and increasing the efficiency of the Navy. And then the Army kind of jumped on board with that and introduced theirs as well. And that was a senator from Massachusetts introduced that bill. So that's how we ended up with the Medal of Honor. So it was the only medal available in the history of the country. George Washington did introduce a sort of proto-Purple Heart Award during the Revolutionary War, but the Medal of Honor is really the first award that the armed services ever had that was a physical medal for the United States. And when the Civil War ended, it's our bloodiest war, our most difficult war, how many medals were given to Civil War soldiers? There were about 900 that were presented during the Civil War. And then as the years went by, they presented a few more. So in the 1890s, really, you see a bunch more Civil War awards being handed out because somebody remembered their buddy did something heroic, so they put in their buddy to receive the medal. And so over time, it's eventually become 1,523. So that's over 40% of all Medals of Honor ever presented have been for Civil War actions. And that's, again, you have to remember it was the only medal available to recognize heroism. Later on, there were some 900 Congressional Medals of Honor that were rescinded. How could that be? Well, what happened is some of it was part of these 1890s, like I was just telling you, where they went back and they started giving them for guys in the Civil War. And they kind of tightened up the standards for the Medal of Honor through the years, starting at about 1890s and going forward. So by the time about 1916 came around, they had really tightened up and sort of changed a few of the requirements for the Medal of Honor. So Congress came back and said, well, let's do a review and make sure everybody meets the standards for the Medal of Honor. And so they formed a review board of five generals, and they went through every Medal of Honor citation and every Medal of Honor award that had been done to that point. And what they decided was those 911 awards didn't meet the standards. And the largest group that was rescinded was for the 27th Maine. And they were a group of soldiers who in June 1863, when the Confederates were growing close to Washington, D.C., the 27th Maine was stationed there, and their terms of enlistment were up. And the concern was that Washington, D.C. needed these soldiers to protect the city. So those soldiers were told, hey, if you stay and protect the city, even though your enlistments are up, you'll get a Medal of Honor. So some of those soldiers stayed, and some of them went home, and nobody really kept track of who stayed and who didn't. Well, the entire regiment ended up with the Medal of Honor. So the largest group that was rescinded was that group, because nobody was sure who stayed and who didn't. And it was determined that they didn't, that wasn't really an act of gallantry. So they didn't meet the standard for the Medal of Honor. So that just as a, for example, that's a group that was rescinded. Part of the thing that's fascinating about the Congressional Medal is that there are very serious criteria Could you walk through the criteria uh, to be considered for a Congressional Medal of Honor? Sure. You need two eyewitnesses to the act. They're usually sworn affidavits. Now in the modern age, they are using technology to sort of reinforce the eyewitness statements. So you've got infrared technology, you've got satellites, you've got helmet cams, vest cams. There's all sorts of technological things they're using to kind of bolster the eyewitness statements. 
The packets are huge, hundreds of pages. They map, they document the situation. It's a life and death situation. It's when you're under fire facing the enemy. There are times even where they can't award it because there are no eyewitness statements. The fog of battle, you just can't always see what's going on or nobody survives to know what was done, but something heroic was done. So you can't award a medal if you don't know what happened, unfortunately. The bottom line is you have to have the two eyewitness statements. And it has to be an act that if it wasn't done, the individual wouldn't be the subject of censure. So the idea is it has to be something voluntary. That's what pretty much that statement means. And the recommendation has to be made within three years, and the medal has to be awarded within five. And that's just to make sure that things don't get confused or things, so things are done in a timely manner. And lately you've seen probably on the news quite a few things that have been done outside of that timeline. And those individuals, Congress has had to actually pass a law waiving that timeline. So those individuals could be presented with the medal and recognized. How many total Congressional Medal of Honor recipients have there been so far? There have been 3,504. Wow. But there have been 19 double recipients. So the number of medals is different from the number of recipients. So there have been 3,523 medals presented. I mean, the, the 19 who were double recipients must be amazing. Yes, their stories are pretty awesome. Their names, I think, most people have heard of, especially if you're a student of military history. Dan Daly, Thomas Custer, Smedley Butler, a few names to throw out. Well, in that sense, what are your favorite stories? There are so many of them. I've always liked Henry Irwin's story. He was a radio man in World War II in a bombing aircraft, and they had phosphorus smoke bombs on board, and part of his job was to drop them. He was double detail. And one of them went off in the launch chute, and it was smoking up the entire inside of the plane, and the pilot couldn't see, and he actually grabbed this thing. And now this is a white phosphorus bomb. It's thousands and thousands of degrees. And he held it to his body and took it to the chute and physically dropped it down out of the chute. So he saved the entire aircraft. He was just burned over his whole body, and he survived this heaven knows how. But he survived it, and his act was so extraordinary. And there's pictures of him lying on a gurney, and they rushed his Medal of Honor through the system, and they presented it to him because they were afraid he was going to die, and they wanted him to receive it while he was still alive. So I've always been impressed with his story, just because of how inspirational he immediately was to everyone. There is a submarine captain, and he was on the deck when his ship was under fire and he told them to dive because the ship needed to get away. He saved everybody on his sub and sacrificed his life because they needed to get the hatch closed and he couldn't get there in time. So the sub's going down and he's standing on deck. And just the thought that was going through his head. I mean, you put yourself in these men's shoes and just the idea of what's going on with them. I mean, in those last few moments of his life, he knows he saved all those guys. It's just amazing to me. Tell me for a second about Smedley Butler. He received his Medal of Honor in two separate instances. And he um, ended up writing a book called War is a Racket. And he ended up testifying in front of Congress about how there's these opportunities for profiteering during war. He believed in his country. He was very much a patriot. Don't get me wrong, but he definitely took his experiences from war and talked about how there is this other aspect of war that maybe civilians weren't aware of. He was a hero in another way as well. So he was on the battlefield, he was a hero, but he was also a hero in the way that he's kind of showing how there's this opportunity for profiteering from the less scrupulous parts of society as well. So he really is a man who stood by his principles. It was fearless both on the battlefield and in civilian life. How many Congressional Medal of Honor winners are there today who are still alive? There's 71. That's, that's out of what, 3,500? Mm-hmm. Amazing. And so are they all, they're all related through the society? Yes. We are the headquarters for all of them. 
They can reach out to us whenever they need to. People send mail. They send invitations for them to speak. Some of these guys are on the road 200 or more days a year. They speak to schools. They speak to veterans groups, active troops. Some of them still go to some of the war zones, meet with the troops who are on active duty. They're busy, busy men. (laughs) If you had to summarize it, you're just talking to an average everyday American. What is it you most wish they understood about the Congressional Medal of Honor recipients? At the end of the day, they are just like them. And that's the inspiration of them. Everybody has it in them to meet that need. When that moment of glory calls, we all have it within us to pull forth and do what needs to be done. It doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, or what your background is. These guys, they run the gamut of all of that. And it's just the fact that they had it within them at the moment they were needed, and so do you, and so does everyone else. That's a great message. Listen, thank you very, very much. When we come back, I'll be joined by Marcus Luttrell, retired U.S. Navy SEAL and founder of the Lone Survivor Foundation. You know, my dad served in, in the Army and retired as lieutenant colonel after uh, 27 years in the infantry. And so I have a deep feeling for military families and for people who uh, risk their lives for the country. What led you to sign up? Why did you end up serving? It's customary for all the men in my family to serve. My father was in Vietnam. My grandfathers were in uh, Korea, World War II, World War One. I. I had a grandfather who was a rough rider, one that fought in the Civil War. Every engagement that's happened in this country, I've had a relative in it before, actually, we were before a country. And just kind of a, it's an understood thing, but it's kind of a, uh, I'm American-made, Texas edition, special forces package is what I like to say. And it's just one of those deals that something comes up, we got to go. My father would always say, before you exploit this country, you have to serve her in some form or fashion. You had a particularly close relationship with your team and engaged in a, a very famous and very difficult mission. It must have been a very painful, extraordinary thing. But could we start and just talk about the, the three guys that you were serving with at that point and the team you were together on? I think people are really interested in, in getting this sort of personal feeling of how you saw them and how you related to them and what they meant to you. We'll start with the highest-ranking guys. Out of respect, you know, my best friend, Mike Murphy. He was a Long Island boy. I mean, he was straight out of New York. First day we met, I remember I walked in. I had a couple of platoons. I was kind of been there longer than him, but he outranked me. And he walked in and said something to me. And I, I, I kind of said, hey, would you get to the point? Because that, that, that Yankee accent of yours is cutting through me like a knife. And then he turned around and made some slight comment just straight back to me. Uh, about my Southern accent. And ever since then, I was like, man, we're going to get along famously. The thing about our community is what rank means is if we get in trouble and we get back to the rear, the highest rank guy is going to take the blame for it, and then it rolls downhill. Other than that, we're a family because of the way we have to train and the things that you guys allow us to do. You're very familiar, sir, with what our community is and what, what it exactly is we're designed for. That's why there's only a handful of us. And because of that, we become family. I mean, you can be born with somebody and share blood with them, or you can spill blood and shed blood with somebody to become family. And the training and everything that we have to go through together builds that bond. And then when you throw us into combat, it solidifies it. Isn't that personal feeling one of the real keys to why people fight and how they fight? That they're, you know, there's, that's the guys next to them. It's the people that they relate to, that they uh, eat with and drink with and talk with that really gives them the courage and binds them together to do the things they have to do. Absolutely. I have people ask me, like, what does a Navy SEAL look like? I mean, we look like everybody. Imagine taking one guy from every walk of life in this country and throwing it into one unit, into one team. We eat together, drink together, we we sleep together, we suffer together. And because of that, we kind of have an understanding of what this world's like because of the dynamic and the difference between all of us. I mean, you're, you're talking about the most alpha men on the planet running around in one spot. We all come from different backgrounds, different races, and we all bring that to the one collective. That's how we know that it would work. Like, you can get along with anybody because of what we do. 
plain and simple. That none of that means anything to us. What's important to us is each other. I was never the strongest, the fastest, or the smartest guy out there, man. I just got to hang around them. In your case, you're kind of unusual because, as I understand it, uh, when you were 14, uh, Billy Shelton began training you, and, and really, you had one of the earliest, deepest personal commitments to doing this. And what was that like? I mean, how do you end up at 14 putting yourself through all this? Okay, so I have an identical twin brother. And he's only seven minutes older than me, but he's the alpha of the two of us. So I kind of follow his lead. He's, he's my hero. It was his idea to be Navy SEALs. Because we were twins, we didn't grow like everybody else. We were real little. All right, I mean, people look at me now. When I graduated high school, I was around 5'6", 154 pounds. And I'm 6'5", 280 pounds. I grew another inch and a half when I was 23 and when I was 40. It was his idea, and I just kind of followed him blindly. The only difference was I had to go first, and if I made it through there with no damage, it was a good idea, right? If I got hurt, he's like, I'll rethink this. So, and we're absolutely inseparable. We're mirror twins. He's the left side, I'm the right, and we follow each other. And it was when he came up with this idea to be Navy SEALs, once we started training for it, we couldn't stop. What was Sheldon's role in this whole thing? Okay, so he had a training program that he developed himself. We come from a small town. Everybody knew who he was. I mean, in, my, in, the, in the crew that I, I went through with, there's three Navy SEALs and two Green Berets. So he, has a, he absolutely knows what he's doing. And you just show up over there. You don't have to pay money. You don't sign any waivers or anything like that. You just show up and you put out. And if you put out in this program, he'll get you in that mindset, mental and physical, to, to make it into, uh, into any of our programs that we have to offer in, uh, in the American arsenal. I mean, he's got it down. And... Um, Plus, being from a small town, if you try to go through his program and then you quit, he'd make fun of us for the rest of our life. You'd have to move. You couldn't even live in the town. Do you think that made you better prepared to then go into the SEAL team program? Sure. I'll never forget that first day. When I, saw, when I walked in there, I was like, hey. <laughs> it's actually at the end of the day. We were in the showers, and I looked at this, this guy. We were beat to death. And I was like, is every day like this? He's like, no, this is just day one. It gets worse every day after this. And I, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's going to be hard. I mean, that whole persona that I have, I've never quit. I, I say that a lot. That's because there's a lot of times I'm like, man, it might be a good idea to quit right now because <laughs> this, this is about to get dangerous and I'm liable to get hurt. It always was dangerous, and I always did get hurt, but I never quit. And uh, because of that, I, I mean, I have, I have the greatest day of my life every day. I, I, I truly do. I'm blessed in, in every capacity, and I've gotten to walk with giants and, and fight in combat. I never looked at that as a bad thing. At all. I, I was honored to be there, period. So you take all of that skill and all that training, and you end up with your three teammates on an extraordinarily difficult and, and dangerous and high-risk mission. Can you talk just for a couple minutes about the three teammates and what they were like uh, and, and how they fit together? Well, I, that's what I started with Mikey. Like I said, he was that Long Island boy. He was our officer in charge. And the next guy was uh, Matt Ackerson. He went through SEAL training with my brother. They were actually swim buddies. That means they were partners through SEAL training They were and sniper school. They were inseparable. They were as close as, as Mikey and I were. And the other gentleman was Danny Deeks. He's a Colorado boy from Littleton. We weren't on the same SEAL team together, but our pipelines are so similar that we were in a lot of the same training uh, classes together. So I had known him my whole career. So when we, we got paired up in Afghanistan, we automatically assimilate. That's because most of the time each guy knows each guy's job. And we're set up that way for a reason. So if you kill one of us, the next guy will step up and do his job, and the guy behind him will step up and do his, until you have to kill every single one of us before we stop. I mean, we don't ever train for defeat. We train to go in, we have a, and we had an extract, secondary, tertiary, and then death. But we had been together, Mikey and, and Axe and I had been together, like I said, our whole career, Danny and I got separated by coast for a little bit, and we got paired back up when we got to Afghanistan. That was my third deployment, I think, and I think it was Danny's second, and I'm not uh, same with uh, Axe and Mikey. How long was the team together, the four of you? So we were probably together, platooned up for almost two years, year and a half, almost two years, before we went to Afghanistan. Prior to that, each one of us were in a platoon before that, and each one of those were a year and a half long of training. Our primary job was reconnaissance, which means we're together all the time, more than any of the door kickers, the snipers, or anything like that. We, they, they launch us out before any bombs are dropped or before any kind of American assault goes down. You have to have eyes on target. Well, that was us, and 
in order to do that, all we would do was spend our lives together in the field. We knew each other better than our wives and, and our family did. And in that process, you, you drew one particular mission that puts you right out at the edge of the support capabilities. When Red Wing came down the pipe, the just on that one, we were, we, were, we were at Border Town, which means we're, we're the, the furthest operating base out there is where we, we launch from. And then we, we kind of go recreate the line, if you will. And in order to do that, it's a small man unit. And it's a small unit tactic for everybody. Always, I've heard people say, why don't you go out there with like 20, 30 people? I was like, because you know how easy it is to see 20 and 30 people? Anybody who knows anything about sneaking around and getting stuff done, you don't do a big signature. So it's small unit tactics. And because of that, we had to be together and train together all the time, underwater and on top of it. So when you have that kind of closeness, I'm going to ask a, a question I hope it's not too personal, but when you have that kind of closeness and you lose a friend that you've been living with, how do you switch gears and keep moving? I think what you're asking is how did I handle when it when all of it went away? Automatically, I never thought about them being dead. I still don't. And the reason I get up and tell this, this story, you know, when I talk about them, when I get on stage and I do my thing, is if I tell you this story and, and you know their names and you turn around and tell somebody else, then they never really die. I mean, we're still talking about them. And I always do, and I always will. So they're really with you in spirit. They're with you right now. You bet. Even I've known each other for a while now, and I, you, you're familiar. I get my button jams more times than I can count. You know, And most of the time I think it's them just bringing me back in there just to remind me how lucky I am to be alive. And I never forget it. I remind myself five times every minute to, just to thank God that, that, you, that I got to have this life. I mean, I truly don't have the vocabulary to express how wonderful this country is, how wonderful our people are, and everything that you guys have done for me and shown me and, and blessed me with. I, I truly don't. And, I, and, and it's because of them. 20 of us went out there, and y'all had to come get me, right? It's not like, I just, it's not like I made it out of there and I, I'm out here bragging about, man, no. I mean, y'all had to come fetch me. I was in hell. And I'll never forget that. I, I'll never forget that you guys came and did that for me. And I, that's why I carry myself the way I do. So I make sure that I not only live my life to the fullest to my extent, I try to make sure everybody else around me does. You like them so much, and, and it, they're so integral to your life. Uh, there must have been some funny occasions. I, mean, I, I, I hear in your voice that there was also a lot of laughter in, in this relationship. And you guys actually, in between the moments of deep stress, you actually had some fun together. Yes, sir. A lot of times people ask me, what, how does one guy make it through SEAL training and another guy doesn't? If you ask every SEAL, we'll all tell you, we all have our own answer, I guess. My answer is humor. Your humor has to be able to roll with whatever situation that you're in. If you look at it like there are no good and bad times, there's just the times. And, and the longer you're alive, and this comes with experience, and it also comes with the people you share it with, right? If they have the ability to adapt into every moment with not only humor, but uh, humbleness, right? What happens is, is if something that would normally be funny somewhere else happens in a terrifying moment, people look at it differently. We don't, because we don't look at it as the good and the bad times. It's either we're training or we're operating. That's it, right? It's either on or off. And <laughs> our humor goes through the whole gambit of that on both sides, right? In the middle of all of that chaos is our life, right? If you can't laugh about it, no one else will be able to underneath us because our job is to take the most pain and chaos that this country can handle. That's why we're out there. That's what we signed up for, to take risks, to die if necessary. That's the sexiest thing we got. And when you take that away from us, you take what we are away from us. And that's why we don't do well in other situations when, there's not, when it's kind of normal because you, you, you guys have reset our normal. And that's why when guys get out, when y'all separate us, it's hard. There's a, there's a difference between when we get in, you, when we're not doing something, that means something's not getting done, okay? And when you get, you get out, it's actually okay to rest. It's, it's okay to take a nap. I never knew that. You got four remarkable people. You're on a very, very difficult assignment. And one of the things we're trying to do for Memorial Day is to share with people the remarkable sacrifice and the remarkable commitment of people who have gotten the Congressional Medal of Honor. And Lieutenant Michael Murphy, or Murph as you would call him, 
achieved that really remarkable status. I mean, these are people for whom the country really owes so much because their courage is remarkable. What was your sense of that? I mean, did, did you see the fight as being that? I was right there when that happened. That moment, he, he, I was right underneath him. I watched him die. I mean, I, I heard it. I, I watched it and, and heard it. That was actually one of my breaking points, was having to hear him die. You need to understand, most people, when they read those citations, they, they, you know, you can read it and you see it on TV, but ultimately, you need, when you're reading that out loud, put yourself in the situation. So just draw yourself into that moment to where all that chaos is going down. And, and all of a sudden, you just decide to say, you know what the hell with this? I mean, th- most people won't give up their safety or their life. It was hell. And I mean, it coming in from all sides to where it was so bad that, it, it, that, the, this falling down that mountain was so bad that sometimes if you were somewhere where you weren't falling, you wouldn't leave your position until you got shot. It, and I mean, for them to, to keep going the way we did, because in this last position, we were done. It was, it was over. We were all stuck into this wedge. There was only three of us left. He had to completely expose himself. At, at a, the movie doesn't do it justice because you can only look through it through a camera lens. You need to understand that you're talking about something that's hundreds of yards in diameter and in order to get to this position <laughs> was nuts. Matter of fact, we didn't have, have this long-ass meeting that they kind of put in the film. I mean, this guy went and deals where he's just like, hey, this is happening, kind of go. And he took that. Not only that, he kept taking it because he kept getting shot. And to keep crawling back up to a position, man, <laughs> I mean... What do you say about that? It's kind of like when, when our guys who get the Medal of Honor for, for the grenade, for, for jumping on a grenade. Imagine someone rolling in a grenade while you're eating dinner in your kitchen. And what do you think most people will do? They go the opposite direction. In our community, it's like a free-for-all who can get to it first. When that rolls in, I mean, you, you literally have a few seconds to realize, not only I can get out of here, but if I don't, I'm going to die. Because of your commitment, I think one of the most impressive things was that you then went and visited each family. They're my family. Once you go through that pipeline, you're programmed in that it's one big family. I thought that each one of their mothers needed to hear how it went down from me, from the guy who was, I was actually there. Not from anybody who wasn't there, which is, I mean, I, uh, I was the only one to make it out of there. Y'all had to come get me. I was the only one allowed to make it out of there. I told them what happened, and I, that's what that book is. It's a debrief. Anybody else saying what happened out there is lying to you because they weren't there. So you then went on, though, having gotten close to the families of the people that you served with and that you loved and that you knew so well. You then went on to do something I think that was really interesting and an important example of patriotism, and that was create the Lone Survivor Foundation. Well, what was your thinking in deciding to do that? I came from nothing, and every time I got hurt, y'all put me back together. And every time, after every one of my surgeries or anything that I had to go through to make me better, once it made me better, I went back and built it. So people coming after me could go through it. Because if I could go through it, anybody can. Every one of the foundations that I've started, I mean, even back to my high school, my college, the biggest mistake somebody made was when they gave me money. Because I, I, will li- I, I try to give it back. I'll go back. Anything that helps me, has done something for me to make me better. I've went back and built it or created a pli- pipeline that somebody after me can go through it from the uniform. That's what we're supposed to do for each other. This is a family. I mean, I don't, I don't know why people keep forgetting that. That's one thing the uniform makes you appreciate. It, it's, man, we bleed for each other here. You know, it, it doesn't matter if you, you know, you're in the same city or anything like that, man. We, we all bleed together on, on that line. And what do you focus on with the Lone Survivor Foundation? What are the particular things you're trying to accomplish? A lot of people focus on the vet. Anybody who's suffering in any kind of capacity in their life, if you want to get rid of that, if you want to get over that, you need to remove yourself from that element completely. And that's what we created. So we basically follow the same pattern that happened to me when I got hurt. When I got out of the hospital, they're like, what, what can we do? I was like, send me back to Texas to my family, give me back my, my mom, you know, they'll, they'll heal me up. And I sent me back to the ranch around the horses and, the, and where I couldn't just sit around and I couldn't just focus on what had happened to me. I had to focus on everything around me. And everybody around me was telling me they were proud of me and they were glad I made it. We have emotions and we go through every level. And, and when I was hurt and having all the surgeries, I mean, that's my lowest point. That's when my mind was at the lowest point because my body was injured. It couldn't entertain my mind. It couldn't get me out of that funk. So I had to literally learn to 
calm down and heal. That comes with life, too, with experience. I mean, the first 40 years of this is supposed to be training anyway, really. Once I started to get better, I got back online. I went back to Iraq in 06 and 07. I got hurt again, <laughs> and they sent me home. Well, they got, well I, got, I got out of the military. I got retired after that. And the Lone Survivor Foundation was started exactly off of the pipeline that I had to go through from the time they, that you guys pulled me off that mountain. And then every foundation after that and every kind of endowment or whatever is, is me healing up and the people who helped me heal up, well, I create that with them. Because you've lived it yourself, you know what people are going through. How does the foundation's progressive retreat program work? I mean, what is it you are trying to accomplish and what is it that somebody who comes to your foundation could look forward to? Ultimately, you're gonna, we're going to take you away from your life, and we're going to put you in one that doesn't concentrate on you. That's the biggest problem with problems, is that you're concentrating on yourself. If you look at every situation as somebody else's problem, you're just there to deal with it, then it becomes free. And when you remove yourself from everything that had hurt you or beat you down, that's how you heal. It's kind of tough to actually heal up the body and the mind. All you're doing is focusing on what beats you up. Right? When they have an issue on the inside, whatever's going on with you at home or whatever, that's just as important as, as, as you focusing on all your other skill sets. Because if you're not completely 100% wired tight and everything's on track, then everything else will suffer when someone's keeping something from you, especially your buddies. So there's no way we get to do that. And because of that, we're really free to kind of focus on only what's in front of us and each other. And you just realize that, man, Everybody is, is absolutely unique in their own way. But when we get together, we're unstoppable. And the proof is, is what we're capable of. At a personal level, you're now married, you have a child. What has all this meant for you? And it's, I think it's very poignant that your son is named Axe after Matthew Axelson. I mean, I, every day you're reminded of Axe. As you had some guardian angel, because he was mine. All those guys were. Trust me, I got everything around me named the same. Uh, the same from all 19 of those guys, not just the three. I mean, I know a lot of the guys focused on what happened on the mountain, but the guys who came in to get us were just as extraordinary and as special to me. And uh, that's why I said 19 promises. But being married, I, I tell you what, I, my brother and I had an agreement, no wife, no kids, from zero to 40. It was just kind of training. You're learning everything about yourself before you, you kind of go and this is a man. We make so many transitions. You know, at 40, you kind of got a little bit figured out. I put half my paycheck away my entire life. So when I hit 40, it was kind of like getting a treasure chest. I was going to go back to school, or I, if I met my wife, I was going to get married, and it was going to go on her finger. And that's what she's wearing. She's wearing my entire life paycheck on her finger. And we started over together. And I mean, it's the best time. I love being married so much. She's a unicorn. She's the coolest. And with the kids, that's the best part about it, too. You know, the kids are just the next version of us. My dad would always say, he's like, look, I'm not your friend. I'm your father. And I, I didn't understand what that meant, but I say it now. Reason being is because I do stupid things with my friends. I've had the same friends since kindergarten, and we do dumb stuff together still to this day. So kind of the perspective I have now, from zero to 40, you have an opinion. 40 to 60 is perspective after that wisdom drops in. I think you're a remarkable person. I think you have a remarkable story. I love the attitude you bring to this, the energy you bring to it. As folks listen to this podcast what can they do if they want to help the Lone Survivor Foundation? How can they reach you? On social media, internet, web, and all that, it's uh, LoneSurvivorFoundation.org, and it's Team Never Quit. I am very grateful for the time you spend with us. Thanks for letting me do it. God bless. Next, I'll speak to the oldest living recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor, Herschel Woody Williams, the last Congressional Medal of Honor survivor from World War II. it'll be really helpful for people to get a better sense of your life and your experience of what the Congressional Medal of Honor is all about. And I think on Memorial Day weekend, it's a particularly appropriate time for people to remind themselves of what it takes us to be free. So let me go back and start right at the beginning. Why did you join the Marines? Well, I really joined the Marines uh, to protect my country because 
We lived out in the country. We had no radio at the time and no newspaper. The word of uh, mouth was that there were a, a group of people that was trying to take our country away from us and our freedom. So I joined the Marine Corps really to protect those things, not to fight a war. I didn't know anything about war, never dreaming that I would be going to the South Pacific and uh, have to get involved in combat. That, that certainly was not part of my desire at that time. So you just felt like it was your duty as a patriot? Yes, indeed. My freedom and uh, my country was important to me, and I certainly didn't want to lose that. And there were a lot of uh, we country boys who uh, didn't know any more than that that went into the military for that particular purpose. As I said, we didn't know. We'd never been involved in war. None of my family had ever been in war. So we knew nothing about it. And the only thing I did know or we were told is, you know, we could lose our country. We could lose our freedom if these people were to take it over. And I certainly didn't want that to happen. So I joined the Marine Corps to protect it. Well, if you don't mind my asking, my dad served 27 years in the infantry in the Army, and I'm just curious what, why you picked the Corps, which, of course, is a wonderful institution, but I just have to ask that as an Army brat. During the peacetime Depression years, we had a couple fellows from our country community who, in order to make a living, joined the Marine Corps. At that time, they only had one enlistment period. You had to go for six years. And the Marine Corps also had a height requirement. You had to be so tall, five foot eight, or you couldn't get in the Marine Corps. But they went in the Marine Corps actually to make a living. They would come home on a 30-day furlough one time a year. That's the only time they ever got home. And when they came back to the community, they were required by the Marine Corps to wear their dress blue uniform. And it was so much more attractive than that ugly Army uniform, that old wool uniform that they had. And girls would kind of look to them rather than anybody else when they were in the community. So I guess those two things influenced me. I wanted to look like a Marine, and maybe I could get me a good-looking girl that way. That's great. Did it work? Did you get a good-looking girl? Well, not at that time. I finally did get me a good-looking girl, and we were married for 63 years, so yeah. You were like 19, almost 20 when you signed up, so you were really making a big decision, you volunteered, to be a demolition sergeant, which was a pretty dangerous and pretty impressive position with, you know, flamethrowers and explosives and things. Did you volunteer, or did the Corps volunteer you? Well, the Corps volunteered me. I was basically a rifleman. I was on the island of Guadalcanal when the flamethrower came out. I was a, what we called back in those days a BAR-man, a Browning Automatic Rifle person. And that was my job. But when the flamethrower came out, they had to establish another unit to handle the flamethrower and teach us how to use it. And at the same time, teaches how to do demolition, because if you couldn't burn it up, then you had to learn how to blow it up. So we did both. And so they trained me in that way and put us in a special unit so that when we got into combat, if the platoon leader or the company commander needed a cave sealed with explosives, we could do that for him. Or if they needed a flamethrower to put flame in a cave or in a pillbox, we could do that. So that's how we got to be, and it was one of those, you have volunteered. So Okay, so having volunteered, wasn't, as I remember it, wasn't carrying a flamethrower dangerous? Well, yes, it was, because you're carrying 70 pounds of weight on your back, You've got four and a half gallons of fuel, uh, flammable fuel on your back with an air tank that's got about 1,700 PSI in it. So, yes, it was dangerous, and you couldn't very well walk upright with them when you were in combat. You were on your belly crawling more than you were up walking because you made such a big target. 
And I've been told, and there is no statistics for this, I don't think, that the average lifespan of a flamethrower, once they got into combat, was five minutes. How I survived, I have to give God credit for that because I don't know. So you took place in two very different kind of battles at Guam and then at, at Iwo Jima. How would you compare those two just as fights? Altogether differently because Guam was almost all jungle. And going through the jungle, we even had to have in areas machetes to cut our ways through the jungle to advance. And on Iwo Jima... They had bombed that thing for day after day after day, and there was nothing standing in the way of shrubbery or trees or bushes or anything like that. And the commanding general of Iwo Jima, according to the record, and I'm just quoting record, he had constructed various size pillboxes, and there were about 200 of them on the island, and that was going to be his principal way of defense was to put his troops, he had about 22,000 of them on Iwo Jima, put his troops either in caves and had miles and miles of tunnel uh, hollowed out in that island, or in a box where they were protected and we were in the opening, in the open area. So that was his defense to keep us from being able to take the island. So you went in, it's one of the, most uh, difficult and bloodiest fights of the Second World War for the Americans. You go in as one of the key elements in taking out these pillboxes. That's the whole point of the flamethrower at that point, isn't it? That's right, yeah. What we tried to do, once we got flame in the pillbox, got close enough to get the flame in, it, we still weren't sure whether that would exterminate all the people in there, so we would then try to put a demolition charge in the pillbox to make sure that the, if the flamethrower didn't get them, then the explosion would. You were both using the flamethrower, and then you were setting off the detonations. Yeah. We had lost so many Marines in attempting to advance on the island that we just didn't have enough Marines to go around. So sometimes you had to do two jobs whether you wanted to do it or not. And I didn't have it after a period of time. I had four Marines assisting me in the beginning, but two of them were killed. I had very little help, so you got to do what you got to do. If I understand it in, in the citation for the Congressional Medal of Honor, you personally were involved in taking out seven pillboxes. Isn't that kind of amazing? Some of them were small and some of them were larger pillboxes. A flamethrower, if you were to, and we did this in training and practice, of course, just open it up and fire it without letting up on it, it would last 72 seconds. Did you have to change or recharge when you're taking out seven different pillboxes? Uh, you can't do that with just one flamethrower load of fuel, can you? No, I used up six flamethrowers. We were trained that you use only what you have to, and we would fire them usually in a three to a five second or maybe 30 second burst. And it would create a huge ball of fire that you could really roll on the ground and roll it into a cave or roll it into a pillbox. And once we did that, then we would continue advance to where we could get close enough to make sure that we could get the flame in the one or the other, whichever we were doing. You lost two riflemen during this process. Do you remember them, or were they new to you? No, I don't. Some of them I do. There's, there's a couple or three of them that have never left my mind, but some of them I do not, and I have tried to find professional people psychologist or somebody that could explain to me why I can't remember that. How do I get my extra flamethrowers? I'm reasonably sure none of the Marines back there said, uh, hey, he's out of flamethrowers, I'll go take him one. I don't think that ever happened, but I still, I still don't know how I got them. And it's bothered me all my life of why can't I remember that? Because it was certainly critical to achieving the job. 
That's remarkable. So you were singled out as one of the people who really helped us win one of the most bitter fights of the entire Second World War. And you got to see President Truman. For a boy from West Virginia, what was that like to go to the White House and see the president? Well, you have never seen a more scared boy in your life. Because I was so frightened when I walked up to him to have him present the Medal of Honor to me. My body was shaking so violently that I just couldn't be still. And I guess that's adrenaline. I don't know what it was, but it certainly was not a comfortable moment. Much of what he said that day, I don't remember either. One thing I do remember him saying, and he said this in different ways. There were 13 of us that day who received the Medal of Honor. They had already been approved before the war was over, but they were not going to call us back just to present a Medal of Honor to us. So when the war ended, then they called those that had already been approved by the Congress and signed by the President. They brought us all back from the South Pacific and presented them all at the same time. And there were six Navy corpsmen, seven Marines, there were 13 of us, presented the medal alphabetically. So I'm next to last. Out of the, I was number 12. And by that time, I had built up a set of nerves you wouldn't believe. And I was really frightened, scared, anxious, whatever you want to call it. But I do remember him saying to me, as he said to the other uh, recipients in different ways, but he said to me, I'd rather have this medal than to be president. I remember that. You were more nervous seeing President Truman than you were taking out pillboxes. You are absolutely right, because at least I was very conscious of what was going on when I was receiving the medal. And when I was in combat, all you think about is getting the job done and keeping yourself alive. So those were the two principal things that you work on at that point in time. So if I'm counting correctly, you're now, what, 95 years old? That is correct, sir. Yes. I'll be 96 in October. And you created the Herschel Woody Williams Congressional Medal of Honor Education Foundation. What's the purpose of that? The purpose of it is, is to recognize the families the relatives of those who have sacrificed their lives in the armed forces of our country. We have done a pretty good job recognizing Gold Star mothers. And we all know that our mothers were basically, mostly, closer to us or we were closer to them than we were even dad. But in all those years that we talked about Gold Star Mothers and some communities erected memorials and tributes to Gold Star Mothers, nobody ever mentioned Gold Star Dad or any member of the family, the widow, the children, the grandparents, cousins, the aunts, the uncles. Nobody ever talked about them. But when you lose a loved one as a member of your family, regardless of how close you may be, you're still related, and there's a certain amount of grief takes place. But we've never done anything in this country to honor the families of those who sacrificed our lives. So we took on the project of having communities where these people live do a Gold Star Family Memorial Monument that pays tribute to those families. And we did the first one in West Virginia on October the 2nd, 2013. We did it, selfishly, for West Virginia families, because we have a memorial on our Capitol grounds that has 11,424 names inscribed on it of West Virginians who have sacrificed their lives in the armed forces. And we had never done anything to pay tribute to those families. So I decided, I, I came up with the idea and presented it to a group of people, and they said, well, yes, that, we need to do that. We should have done it a long time ago. I designed the memorial, and we built the first one. The second one was done at Valley Forge. Now we have 47 of them somewhere in the country, from Guam 
to California and New York to Florida and Texas and all over, paying tribute to those families in those communities. And West Virginia, I'm very proud to say, we already have five in various communities of our state. We've got two more in the process. And in October the 2nd, coming up this year, we will dedicate one that is twice the size of any other in the country on our capital grounds to pay tribute to all families, every family in the state that lost a loved one for our freedom and for America. That's really great. And people who'd like to help with this project can go to the Herschel Woody Williams Congressional Medal of Honor Education Foundation can support you. Yes, indeed. And we'd love to have that because we have no means of actual support. We go to these communities, and I do a lot of speaking engagements, and they do give us honorariums occasionally, and I devote all of that to the foundation because that needs to be done. And even today, Mr. Speaker, in the capital of our great United States of America, We do not have one single thing of all the monuments or memorials. We do not have one thing in this capital of this country that pays tribute and honor to the families who have sacrificed more than any of us. Nothing. To me, that is just a total shame. Because that ought to be the center point where our country would recognize all of these families over the history of our country that have given one of their own, part of themselves, so we could be free. Great. Listen, thank you so much for sharing your life with us. Thank you, sir. Thank you to my guests, Laura Jowdy, Marcus Luttrell, and Herschel Woody Williams. You can read more about the Congressional Medal of Honor the history, and a full list of recipients on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Westwood One. The executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski. Our researchers are Rachel Peterson and Hunter Estes. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's Tim Sabian and Robert Mathers. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World. In this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. the Westwood One Podcast Network. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. 
Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony DeLisandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it gonna, like that's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. 